have your Bibles, and I hope you do, go ahead, grab those and turn with me to the book of Philippians. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 2 this morning. So turn to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to be specifically looking at verses 12 and 13 this morning. Martin Luther was not one to mince words. He was a straight shooter. And I I just want to tell you, I got a lot of enjoyment. I was on a road trip uh, last two days. I've been on a road trip heading to Las Cruces. And it was fun because there was times during my road trip where I would Google Martin Luther's insults. And the things Martin Luther said were hilariously funny. Uh, He just told it how it was. And so if you're ever bored waiting, wherever you're waiting, just Google Martin Luther's insults and it's great. Um, I also want to encourage you not only to look at the insults of Martin Luther, but if you ever are curious about what happened prior to the past hundred years in the church, some of the best theology you can read came In about 1517 at the Reformation, read people like Luther, John Calvin, Zwingli, Count Zinzendorf. These guys were just rich in theology. And man, it's one of those things where like, we just don't talk like that anymore. And how they phrased things were just so beautifully. I mean, their words were like a paintbrush and they would paint just a glorious picture for us of the Bible. And I want to encourage you just get into those guys. Seth has Calvin's Institutes on his bookshelf. I stole it the other day and was reading it and was just looked up and three hours had passed. So it's great. Who was Martin Luther? Why is he important? Why do I make a big deal about bringing up Luther to you this morning? He was the son of a coal miner who saved up all his money to get his son, Martin, to law school. Martin Luther goes into law school and is easily one of the best students at the best law school in Europe. One day he's riding home from school on his horse and a lightning storm comes out of nowhere. And he says a lightning bolt hit so close to him, it knocked him off of his horse, just like the apostle Paul was knocked off his horse. And he cried out to God and he says, God, if you would spare my life, I will go into the ministry. God spared Martin Luther's life and he went into the monastery. He went to become a monk. He goes into the monastery and he quickly becomes one of the best students in the monastery. He's memorizing and he's writing and writing just beautiful pieces, except Martin Luther had one issue. When he would go into the confessional, he would never leave. The priest said that Martin Luther would spend up to six hours confessing his sins. Think about that. Six hours. So many of us are like, I think I could get through six seconds because I'm so good. Right? And Martin Luther goes and it is his first mass. It's the mass he's memorized. And he stands up to deliver the mass to the people. And the words just won't come out. He's moving his lips, but there's no air coming out. There's no words coming out. Martin Luther was petrified. He would later tell 
that as he stood there and delivered the mass, he did not forget the words. Rather, he was in fear and trembling because he had to ask this question. How can I, a sinner though myself, do the work of God if I am so sinful? Martin Luther then went back to the monastery where he wrote his 95 theses. 95 doctrinal statements and he nailed it to the door of the Wittenberg church. This sparked what we know today as the Protestant Reformation. A few years later, the church called a, what they call a diet. What a diet is, is a special meeting of the minds where they're called to really discuss a theological principle. And they bring it in, and it was in, Werner can help me say this, it was in Worms, right? Did I say that right, Werner? Worms, uh, the diet of worms that we say in English. And he stands before all these brilliant minds of the theological giants. And they said, Dr. Luther, do you recant your 95 thesis? And if you watch the movies, Martin Luther just stands there, chest out, and goes and starts in his speech. History tells a different story. That Martin Luther, this tiny little monk, started to put his hands in his hair. And he says, I need 24 hours. He goes and he's secluded in a room with a Bible and a journal. And for the next 24 hours, Martin Luther prays. And by the way, you can Google his prayer in those 24 hours. It's some of the best literature I think I've ever read. And after the 24 hours, Martin Luther stands and they said, Dr. Luther, do you recant? Martin Luther stood there still fear, trembling, shaking. And he's afraid. He's like, I know that if I don't recant, it's going to tear apart the church. It's going to divide. It's going to disunify. What do I do? And with a shaky voice, Martin Luther says this, since your majesty and your lordships desire a simple reply, I will answer without horns and without teeth. Unless I am convicted by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything. For to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I can not do otherwise. Amen. I am captive by the word of God. And one of the verses that was the main discussion in the Protestant Reformation and is a debate we still carry today is found in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. And the question is simply this. Is it faith and works that bring about salvation? Or does works come after faith? 
the leading theology at that time, the leading study of God at that time was very simply this, that you have to have faith and you have to have works in order to be saved. And Martin Luther, John Calvin, Zwingli, Zinzendorf all says, may it never be for I am too sinful to ever accept God on my own power. It is God who grants it to me first. And all God's people said, amen. Because we do not choose God. God chose us. And that is the good news of the gospel. Because you had no good in you until God placed good in you. Do you see? And today, we just phrase the argument a little bit different. Today, we have two things going on. When you really look at the church, it's the same debate. It's just called something different. We've got legalism over here and antinomianism over here. So legalism is what we saw, especially in the American church from the 1950s to about the 1980s. That's the legalism. Like you only can side hug a girl because if you frontal hug, that'll lead to sin and death and all this stuff. And there's all these rules in the church and what you could and could not do. That was legalism. And the baby of that has come out, this antinomianism, anti-against nomianism law that don't worry about obedience and talking about obedience and telling people to be obedient. Don't even talk about any of that. And so which one is it? And the answer is neither. For both is their own gospel. We see this when you go to church conventions and the growth of the church. When you look at this, they could just call it something different. Do we adapt to the culture or do we make our own culture? I love how Timothy Keller says it, and we're going to put it up on the screens because I want you to see this quote. This is beautiful. How is the church supposed to look? What does it look like? Timothy Keller says this. If we over-adapt to a culture... We have accepted the culture's idols. If, however, we underadapt to a culture, we may have turned our own culture into an idol, an absolute. We overadapt to a culture, we aren't able to change people because we are not calling them to change. If we underadapt to a culture, no one will be changed because no one will listen to us. We will be confusing, offensive, or simply, or simply unpersuasive. Are we supposed to look like the world or not? Timothy Keller says, no, we're supposed to look like Christ. And that's what Paul's going to dive in for you and I this morning in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, that the gospel destroys antinomianism and it destroys legalism at its core. But before we do that, we need to go before the Lord in prayer. A church service is incomplete without prayer. Prayer is what God's people do. It's what God's people love to do. When God's people don't know what to do, they pray. When they know what to do, they pray. They pray without ceasing. They're anxious about nothing, but in prayer and supplication, God provides everything. So I want to invite you, if you're able, join me on your knees as we go before the Lord in prayer. Will you pray with me?
Father, we're held captive by the word of God. God, I'm so thankful that you've put in my heart to preach your word and not my opinions. God, I'm so thankful for Luther and Calvin and all of our reformers who stood up and said, this is the word of God. God, I pray I'll have that same courage this morning. God, I come in fear and trembling, a man of unclean lips. God, I pray you work mightily this morning. Now, church, I ask you to pray for me. Pray that I'll be helpful to you. Pray that the Lord will use me. But most of all, pray that the Lord will decrease me this morning. Now, church, I ask you to pray for yourself. Pray that God will speak to you. Pray that your mind and your hearts will be open, ready to accept and be transformed by the word of God. Father God, this is where we stand. We love you and we pray these things to you, knowing you will complete what you have started in us. Amen. Philippians chapter 2, verses, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Let us look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Therefore, is how Paul starts verse 12. Always remember, conjunctions are your stop signs in scripture. When you're reading the Bible and you see a conjunction, it means stop and pause. And so if you see therefore, you know where I'm going to ask you, what is the therefore, therefore? Why did Paul put therefore here? Because he's summarizing his argument. So how is Philippi, how is Philippians, the book, work together up until chapter 2, verse 12? Paul's going to start off in Philippians. He's going to start off with the joy of the gospel. Paul's going to start off how everything about the gospel brings us joy and that circumstances cannot remove from us our joy. He's going to remind us how important it is to dig in and stand firm and do the work of the gospel. And then he's going to walk through in chapter 2, what is the gospel? If you were here last week during Easter, we walked through, here is the gospel. And I know I am a man and I am uh, flawed beyond reason, but I tried my very best to tell you the gospel is summarized in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, by becoming obedient. And that's huge. That is the linchpin of verse 12 with the therefore. And let me tell you, if you're joining us this morning, I want to tell you what I love about this church. This church takes serving one another very seriously. It's modeled by our leadership. One of our elders, Mark Harris, last week during Easter said, man, I'm going to be like Christ. I'm going to humble myself and become obedient to what Christ has commanded me. And guess what he did? He went he served in the children's ministry last week. 
What a beautiful picture, church, of coming obedient like Christ. And saying, man, those kids are vitally important. This is a good part where you say amen. Amen. This is a really good part. (laughs) Because that's our future. The kids are our future. And I'm so thankful that Mark did that last week. And that you do it as well. That you, church, love and serve one another. That man, when somebody's moving, I don't have to worry about is there going to be enough people because it all happens. That's becoming obedient. And I thank you for showing that love of Christ truly. And so Paul's going to continue to walk through. He's going to talk about the gospel. You see, there's two main themes in the book of Philippians, the joy and the gospel. Because Paul wants us to see that if you have the gospel, you have joy. And joy comes from the gospel. And then we see my beloved Paul's using my beloved. I know some of your translations say, my dear friends, I don't think that's strong enough. My beloved is, you are my all. You're everything. You're my best friends. You're all I love to be around. Man, I'd give my right arm to be with you, Philippi. That's how much I love you this morning. And then he talks about, as you have always obeyed, He says this, so now, not only in my presence, but much more, circle that much more, in my absence. What's Paul saying here? Paul's giving us a picture of discipleship. I think discipleship is one of those things we talk a lot about, but we so rarely walk it. So what is discipleship? What Paul is saying is, as I was with you, you learned from me. You followed me as I followed Christ. You were obedient like Christ. And now I'm hearing reports that you've become even more obedient. This is the goal of discipleship, church. That when the person who's doing the leading and the discipling steps out, the relationship with Christ continues in the person that person is discipling. This church has benefited from the discipleship of a man named Mark Julian who discipled Seth, Michelle, myself. He led us into this is ministry. And you know what Mark's greatest joy is now as he's in Houston, Texas, is seeing that he's not needed that we are continuing to do the work of the ministry. That's the point of discipleship. It's replication. It's pressing in. It's reaching out. The purpose of the church, the one job of the church is to go therefore and make disciples. Pressing in, reaching out. This is obedience that Paul is talking about. Remember, the church of Philippi started with four people, excuse me, three people. A super rich woman, a super poor slave girl, and this rough and tough military jailer. 
And what did they do? They went and they made disciples in obedience to Christ. And then Paul is going to talk about the cross. Notice how Christocentric the book of Philippians is. The cross is at the center of his whole work in Philippians. The cross is what separates the Christian religion and every other religion. It's because of Christ's atoning work on the cross, we believe what we believe and we refuse to let go of the cross. There will not be a Sunday in this church, so help me God, that the cross will not be proclaimed. Because without the cross, we are nothing. There's no point where we go, I'm done with the cross. I've been there. I've done that. I heard that. No, the cross is where our tears just flow from our eyes and say, how could it be that Christ died for a wretch like me? How could it be? How is it possible? We don't move past the cross. We can't move past the cross. And what did he do on the cross? He destroyed our selfishness, our self-gratifying desires, nailed it to the cross. Because the cross shows us what our punishment is. Yet also shows us how far God is willing to go to pour out his love on you. My friends, the cross does not just make your life a little bit more comfortable. It does not make your life just a little bit more happy. No, no, no. The cross does a whole lot more than that. The atoning work of cross is it gives me a whole new heart, a whole new self. So I'm no longer like I once was, but I'm a whole new creation. That you don't recognize that old man anymore. All you know is the spirit filled man that says, man, I want to do the work of Christ and Christ himself. We call this sanctification. I know it's a really big word. Let me tell you, John Calvin just summarized. He summarized these two verses so beautifully, and I'm going to throw it up on the screen. He said this, it is therefore faith alone that justifies, that makes you right. And yet the faith which justifies is not alone. I don't know of a better summary of these two verses than that right there. And so what Paul says here is he says, obedience. Now what happens is when you start to talk about obedience, we start to kind of walk through this like legal argument. Well, this is what you should do. This is what you shouldn't do. This is what you should do. This is what you shouldn't do. But let me tell you, It's Christ who brings obedience. Because I think when we walk into obedience, and this this is going to sound familiar if you've talked to anyone about obedience, they're going to say this. So you're telling me God says I can't do this. That sounds like God's trying to keep me from fun. That sounds like God's trying to keep me from enjoyment. You're telling me God doesn't want me to have sex before marriage? Man, sex is fun, so I want to go have sex. I want to go have fun. Why would God put me in a cage? That doesn't sound fun. 
And so the antinomianism argument is, no, 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 God just wants you to be happy. God wants you to be who you are. You just stay as you are, and God will just make you super, super happy. All he cares about is your happiness. Paul destroys this this argument because, first of all, the cage argument. God keeps you in a cage in obedience. This sounds very similar to Genesis chapter 3, where the serpent tells the woman, hey, God doesn't want you to eat of that fruit because he knows you will know as much as he does. He's trying to keep you from something. That was Satan's argument from the beginning. But let me tell you, church, obedience brings freedom. Obedience brings life. He's keeping you from something. Why? Because your obedience is giving you life and joy when your self-satisfying nature is destroying you. Your sin is literally killing you. And he's saying, no, you follow me and I will give you rest. I'll give you joy. I'll give you happiness. I will give you me. How beautiful is that? How wonderful is that? And so I know the arguments because Paul's going to walk through this. Romans chapter 6, he's going to walk through this argument. He's going to say, you're either a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. Seth must have read my notes, so we're just that together on this whole deal. Uh, There's no such thing as freedom. Freedom does not exist. It's gone. You're a slave to your sin and your flesh, or you're a slave to Christ. You got one of two options. And so what Paul is doing here in his argument in obedience is simply this. He's saying, here's how you're a slave to your sin when you do what you want to do. You're never going to be satisfied. If I could just have a little bit more. Man, if I could just get to this next step, if I could just get there, I'd be satisfied. And once you get there, what do you find? Still not happy. Still not satisfied. I'm still not okay. Man, if I could just have all this stuff and you still find yourself left out, incomplete. But what Christ does is he says, you come to me, I'll give you me, and I will be enough. That's a slave to righteousness. Because you're seeking the applause of him who says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. That's the good news of the gospel. And here's the beautiful part. Your sin's always going to tell you to get more. But what Christ does is he takes you, he saves you, and he sends you out into the world. He doesn't put you in an isolated area and bring you right to heaven because you've got to grow. Obedience produces growth. How does that happen? Think of like a potted plant in your house. That plant will only be as big as the pot will allow. But if you take that potted plant and you go outside to your garden and you put it in the nasty weather and all that junk and animals and everything, what is that plant going to do? It's going to grow far more than it was in this potted plant. This is why the job of the church is not to protect but to equip, to equip the saints for their work in ministry. 
as you go out and you do the work God has placed upon each and every one of your lives. It is God's word that equips you for that work. This is obedience. Fear and trembling. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So when you read a lot of commentaries on this, some will go super soft on this verse and say, well, fear means respect. They're not wrong. They're right. It's the third definition of this word, fear, respect. But that doesn't make sense. Work out your salvation in respect and trembling. That does not make sense. So what is fear and trembling and how does that work? And why is Paul telling us, work out your salvation in fear and in great trembling? Let's go back. Genesis chapter 3, God came to Adam and Eve and what did they do? They hid. Why? Because they were afraid. Moses, Exodus chapter 3, hid his face. Why? Because he was afraid. Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah meets God. And what does he do? He falls down on his face because he is afraid. Simon Peter comes before Jesus. Jesus is a scary dude, yo. And what does Simon Peter do? He falls on his face in fear. It's far beyond respect here. Why? What is it? What is he saying here? He's reminding us of, think about it, Christ were to come to your house, the perfect, holy, spotless Yahweh himself. He were to sit at your house. You would break out the nicest china, or if you live at my house, the paper plates and the plastic cups. Okay? I think I've got some, like, sparkling what do you call those, Martinelli's or whatever those are, the non-alcoholic, whatever, pour it for Christ, right? You were to come and he were to look at you in the eye knowing every coveted thought, every nasty, horrific, disgusting thought you've ever had, knowing every horrible action that not even your spouse knows. He'd know all those things, know you're punishable of hell and condemnation. And how would he look at you? With love and grace. He'd see you. As the Father sees you covered by his blood. And so here's where it comes. The difference between antinomianism and legalism is simply this. When you look at Christ and when you look at fear and trembling and how it works itself out, the question you need to ask this morning is when you sin, right? Anyone perfect in here? Okay, good. Just want to make sure. When you sin, what's going on? And here's what's going on. And I want to tell you, the legalist will say, I broke God's rules and so I'm afraid and trembling. Well, the gospel says, I broke God's heart. And I'm afraid because I'm going to come before God and I'm going to say, how could you still put up with a mess up like me? How could this be? And it's God who says, come, I will lift you up. And I will walk with you. The legalist is afraid because he broke God's rules. The gospel is afraid because they broke God's heart. And God's love is greater than your sin. If you could out the cross, then the cross has no power. 
And so you come before God in fear and in trembling. Why? Because you know who God is. And you know who you are. Verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What does salvation do? Salvation gives you God. And listen, this is going to be weird for some of you. I hope this resonates with you. The cross was for you, but ultimately it was not about you. It was about the glory of God and you are the recipients of his great act in going to save you. The cross of Jesus Christ was ultimately for God first and us second. It was his obedience as Paul is going to walk through in Philippians chapter 2. Because there was nothing good in us until Christ came and redeemed us. If you read the kind of literature coming out, why are young people leaving the church? There's a whole lot of opinions, and that's all they are. First John says they went from us because they were never with us. Paul says, he who began the good work in you will see it too completion. And he's saying the same here in chapter 2, verse 13, that it is God's work. It is God's will. It is God's atoning work in you that keeps you. It's God's work that saves you. It was the start of God. It will be the finish of God. And everything in between will be God. It will not be on your power. For if it had anything to do with your power or your might or your choice, then the cross would be no need. And so he produces obedience. He produces will. He produces work. Michael Phelps, arguably one of the best Olympic athletes in the world and maybe in history, broke countless records. When he was in the midst of his training, this was what he would eat. 10,000 calories per day. For breakfast, he ate three fried egg sandwiches with cheese and veggies, an omelet made of anywhere between three and six eggs, one bowl of corn cereal, French toast, three large pancakes, and God's greatest gift to mankind, coffee. For lunch, he would eat over a pound, over a pound of pasta with tomato sauce, two ham and cheese sandwiches. For dinner, he would eat another pound of pasta with tomato sauce and a large meat lover's protein-filled pizza. 10,000 calories. The average American eats close to 3,000 calories per day. Michael Phelps was eating three times as much as you and I, and he still was skinny. Why? Because what was coming into him was being worked out of him. This is the gospel. 
And I can say this on my many years of experience before you. That it is dangerous to be theologically obese and obediently anorexic. Getting all that's coming in, yet never working out our salvation. I find myself eating so, eating 10,000 calories of theology so much and not working any of it out. Causes you to become sluggish, irrelevant, and useless. So what do we do? And I can say this again on my total authority of so much experience. I know there are days when you wake up and you're like, the last thing I want to do is serve God today. I am spent. I'm tired. I'm exhausted. I'm worn out. Man, I don't want to do this. This is too difficult. Anyone been there? Yeah? And then so like, what do we do? You position yourself under the waterfall of grace and you say, God, I need you. I need your will. I need your work. I need your spirit to guide me. And what does God do? Y'all ready for this? He sends his church. He's already said it. Work out your salvation, that yours in the plural. Work out y'all's salvation with each other. The working out of salvation is done in the community of believers. It's done within the context of the church. And what you do is you get with a friend who can spur you on to the work of ministry, who can, like Seth Harris told me this week, hey man, let's just take a table and go sit on the lawn of the U of A and let's see how many people we can talk to. You get those friends around you and you start working out what God is working in you. Next, if you're sitting in here and you're just like, man, I'm so exhausted. I'm so tired. I don't feel the presence of the Lord this morning working in me. Here's what you do. You start talking about all the things God has done for you. You let that be your song and your praise and you watch how much you want to tell that story. The chief end of man is to enjoy God and glorify him. The purpose you are here on this earth is to enjoy God and glorify him. Because God dwells with his people. This is the summary of the gospel. That the gospel is for you, but it's not ultimately about you. It's about God and his glory. Why did God create humans? For us to glorify him. And the gospel is, he died in our place. The holy one for the transgressors, the blameless one for the wicked, the righteous one for the unrighteous, the incorruptible one for the corruptible, the immortal one for the mortal. And we are changed. And we're set free from our lives. 
and we are no longer enslaved to our sin and our flesh, always wanting more because we realize Christ is enough. And let me tell you, friends, if Christ is not enough for you this morning, we need to talk like 10 minutes ago. Do not be misled. It's not Christ plus something. It's always will be Christ and Christ alone. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you. I thank you for obedience. The obedience that gives us life. It gives us energy. It gives us vitality. Obedience that wants us to do your work, do your will. God, I thank you for the cross that we can stand here, tired though we are, and say, I'm going to keep going. I'm going to do whatever it takes. I'm going to go wherever you ask because you're enough. And as long as I'm with you, God, I am satisfied in you. God, we praise your name.